Welcome to RH at Home. I'm Chad Clement. I'm the pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. I'm thankful that you're deciding to join us today. I'm prayerful that today's message will do great things in your life. Not because of my words, but really what God has to say for us, to us today through His Word. We're going to be picking up our study of the book of Ezra in chapter 9. Just to give us a real quick recap of what we've seen take place, we've seen you know the first six chapters of Ezra where Zerubbabel and a, a guy by the name of Yeshua lead a remnant of people out of Babylon where they've been exiled for 70 years. And they lead them back to Israel, back to Jerusalem with the intent of rebuilding the temple. And as only God can do, we see in that first chapter, um, they're still in exile. They're still under a pagan king, Cyrus. But Cyrus allows them to go and doesn't just allow them to go. He encourages an open invitation to anybody who would be willing to leave to go back home. And he, off, he also offers to, to really help finance the trip. And so we see a, a remnant, a group, a small group, really about 50,000 people which to us seems like a, a big group, but, but in comparison, there were about two to three million Jews living in exile. And so really a relatively small group leaves and they go to begin to work on the temple. And as we, kind of, as we walk through that, we said, whenever we're trying to do God's work, well, one thing we can almost count on, opposition. The enemy doesn't want us to do things, especially good things for the Lord. So they're going to try and divert us. He's going to try and stop us. And he'll use, employ all sorts of different tactics. And that's what we see happen there. We saw in those first couple of chapters of Ezra that, that the opposition comes and it causes him to stop for a few years, really 18 years, probably 15 to 18 years. Well, again, through God's word, right through the through some prophets coming and speaking God's word to the people. Man, they repent of their sins. They go back to work. They finish the temple. They rejoice. And that's a great story of the rebuilding of the temple. People can once again worship the Lord. As, as he kind of instructed and, and worked and played and, and as they had done previously. And so again, some great stories along the way. And then, then we also saw like two weeks ago, starting in verse or chapter 7, through the end of this book, like the second half of, of Ezra. And this is another wave, another group of exiles that are leaving Babylon and returning to Jerusalem, returning to Israel. This time it's, it's led by, the, by, by a man by the name of Ezra, a scribe. And last, week, last two weeks, I hope we were kind of excited about that. Again, we see a, an even smaller remnant. This time, about 1,500 men. You know, maybe if we consider the women and children along with that, maybe four, 5,000 people total. So a significantly even smaller remnant coming. And this group, I mean, well, well, they're not going to try to rebuild a temple. They're not, they're not charged with rebuilding you know, the wall or, or homes. What we're going to see them do, what we're going to see take place is them rebuilding the people, really bringing revival. And so a really awesome story of that group coming, a small remnant, um, again, similar to the first group of, of, of uh, exiles. You know, this time Artaxerxes is the king and he gives them resources. Man, last week, I don't know about you guys, but man, I was challenged with the faith that we see in Ezra. 
where, where he gets these things that he's asked for, and then he goes to God in prayer. He, he's, he's concerned, he's scared, because he knows he's got to bring you know, all of these resources from Babylon back, or over to Jerusalem, over to Israel. But it's not an army's backing. He's not a general, right? He's a scribe, he's a pastor, right? Leading some people who, who kind of come from that, you know, temple mindset. And so it's not a military force that's going, but yet that group goes, they're faithful, they go before the Lord, they, you know, they, 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 they fast and they trust and have faith in the Lord that he's going to protect them. And he does, and they get there. And man, it, it seemed like we ended on a great high note last week. Last week, They're there, they're at the temple, they're able to worship again. Like things are good. And Remember, like this is a group that had never been to Jerusalem before. They'd never seen the temple. They'd never been able to worship in a temple, offer sacrifices in a temple. So, man, how amazing and glorious and you know awesome that must have been. Such a high for that group of people. Now we get to chapter nine, and chapter nine looks a little different. And I, I hope and I pray that, that this chapter today will strike a chord for us. Because as I was considering this, thinking through this, like the Lord really convicted me about some things in my life. And I hope that maybe He does the same for us, for you. So we get to Ezra chapter 9. In verse 1 and 2, it says this, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, um, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Verse 2 says, For they have taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race was, has mixed itself with peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. And so for us to maybe get a sense of this, Ezra arrives. Man, there's like this spiritual high, like good things, excitement and joy. And, and I'm sure like... I'm guessing, speculating, and Ezra's mind kind of leading up to, to, to their efforts of leaving Babylon, and maybe on, along the journey, it was probably in his mind thinking, man, once we get there, once we finally arrive at Jerusalem, once we finally get to the temple, everything will be good. The struggles, they'll be no longer. Like, like everything will be good, it'll be great, like, it'll be awesome. And we see when he gets there, he doesn't seem to have even settled in very long. And then a crisis arrives. It really didn't arrive. I mean, he, be, he became aware of the crisis. The crisis apparently had been going on for a while. And what we see taking place here is that, that the people that were there in Israel began to intermarry with the other nations, the other people groups. I want to be really clear with this. You know, we have to understand this, and we don't maybe have time to completely flesh this out. But God had been very, very clear in His Word that 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 His people, 
the children of Israel were not to intermarry with these group, other groups of people, right? And, and, it, and it was, I think, for a, a, a number of reasons. You know, a couple of real three, like, kind of real quick reasons was this. You know, the, the, the children of Israel here, they, they were the ones that were, that were going to provide the knowledge of, a, of the one true living God to, to all of humanity, so they're going to they're gonna be the ones that are going to be able to go and share and tell people about God. Two, they're going to be the ones who are going to actually be given the written word of God. And then three, as we look at the prophecy that we read about in the Old Testament, and we see the prophecy come true in the New Testament. It was out of this line that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come through. So those are three really important things, right? And I think that God wanted to preserve that. The problem with them intermarrying with, intermarrying with all these other groups, people groups, where they were involved in all sorts of different types of pagan worship, I, I think that Ezra is being very kind when he uses words like abomination and filthiness. It's almost as if he doesn't want to describe how bad these people were living, how bad um, their, their faiths were. I mean, we're talking about, you know, about wild sacrifices, like even children, like child sacrifices and doing wicked and evil, awful things, like unimaginable things. And see, so when God gives them this, this rule, if you want to say it, a commandment, understand like it, God had a plan for it, he had a reason for it. As we said, like those three things right, of giving out, you know, the knowledge of God, of, of, of writing God's word, and then ultimately becoming the line of Christ, the Messiah. But it was also for their good. It was for their good. Um, if, if you have a chance, maybe later on, um, you can go to Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 7, 1 through 6, and it talks a little bit about this. And we might actually read it a little bit later, but, but in essence, what he was, his, his heart was, like when you get involved with those people, it's going to do ultimately harm to you. And God makes a point when we read about it in Leviticus, and we read about it in Deuteronomy, and even Ezekiel, that it begins to damage the children. The, the children, you know, they end up being brought up, raised up, not, not knowing the one true God, but also interweaving all the other faiths and beliefs and things. And so God was very, this is a very clear, like, you should not, you, very clear commandment. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There was no gray area in this. This is a very clear, clear commandment. Right? Written law. The people knew this commandment. Right? And it's almost as if this, this news that's being delivered to Ezra keeps, like, it, it starts off bad and it keeps getting worse. Right? I mean, he gets there and, and he, he finds out that the people have been ignoring the commandments. And then ultimately, when you get to the end of it, you realize that it wasn't just encouraged by the leadership. The leadership was actually doing it. The leadership of the people were, were involved. It was almost as if they're leading the pack. They're, they're, they're setting the example for everybody else. What's interesting, it's not mentioned here, but if you go into, um, into Malachi, which is the, old, the last book in the Old Testament, it's written a little bit after the days of Ezra. 
and there's reference back here, and, and some commentators will say that, that in essence, part of what we see that, that kind of taking place here is, is this Jewish leadership, when they got over here to Jerusalem, or they got there to Israel, they actually would, that many of them divorced their wives, and they would take on wives of those other women of the other nations in that area. And so a very, very twisted thing. Now, here's the deal. We can be really good at making excuses for our sin. Right? We can be really good like in our minds, like thinking through these things and being able to justify a means. Like, like the end justifies the means. Like I, I need to do something, I am not doing something bad or wrong, but, but I'll, I'm doing it for like a good reason. So, so maybe in, in this context, we, we could be saying like maybe in their minds, like even though that was the, the commandment, they shouldn't do that. Maybe along the way, like, like the people in a twisted way begin to justify their sin by saying, well, well, you know what? I mean, there's not enough, there's not enough single Jewish women here. Or too many of them stayed in Babylon. We, we just don't have enough. And, and we want to, we want to grow our population. So, so we need to go and repopulate these other groups. And, 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 and certainly like our influence will change them, not them change us. But maybe some of it was, you know what, like, we want to be good neighbors. We don't want these other nations to rise up against us. And so maybe by intermarrying within them, like it could be a, like a, a nice peace accord. We're going to bring peace and prosperity to our land. And again, they try to justify the sin by certain manners and methods. And that's a bad thing. And it's never right. When we get back to Ezra, as this news is delivered to Ezra, I want us to notice his response. Verse 3 says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. It was almost as if it's a, it's a picture of mourning. He heard the words of, of all that was taking place. And, and I think this is what I, we're going to see something amazing about Ezra. He hears what's taking place. And he doesn't run to those people and start yelling at them. He doesn't go to that group of people and just start preaching to them about all their bad things and all the wicked things that they've done. No, what we see here is he, he falls. I mean, he tears his, his, his um, robe. He, he is so crushed by the sin. He begins to pull the hair from his beard and his head. And, and, and notice what we see taking place. Verse 4 it says, Then all who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And so people witness the way that Ezra is responding to the sin around them. One of the things that I think is so amazing about this chapter, I'm not, I don't want to paint the picture that Ezra was a perfect man. Ezra was a man with a sinful nature just like ours. But in this context, in this story of what's taking place here, Ezra is not 
at fault. Ezra is not involved in anything going on. Ezra has not divorced anyone. Ezra has not married you know, a, a woman from another nation. Ezra is innocent in all of this, but notice his response that sin, sin has grabbed, I mean, he is so, so broken over this sin. And then as he responds, the people, and I love that, that phrase, that trembled at the words of God. That trembled the words of God. See, see what it is? It's, it's those people who took the Bible as truth. It's those people who knew God's word, like all of it. It's those people who, who, who were not perfect, but desired to follow God's word, who, who would read it, would consume it, and believed it. It was in critically important in their lives to the point where it made them tremble. And they gathered, and they, they gathered around Ezra and watched this response. Verse 5 says, Not the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying. So he spends that, that time before almost mourning, falling like broken over the sin. And when he, he gets up and he goes and he does something, Again, he's not going and confronting people. He's not preaching at them, pointing fingers at all the bad things they're doing. No, he's going to pray. He's going to pray. And, and notice the posture it mentions there, that, that, that he rose up and then um, he fell upon his knees, spread out my hands to the Lord. On his knees, hands in, in, in a moment, we're going to see in the next verse or two that his face was down. That was not the normal posture that the Jews would, would pray in during that time. You know, typically speaking, most of them during that day, like their, their, their posture was to be standing in prayer. And many times, their face looking up to the Lord. Here we see a broken humble man on his knees hands spread out face to the ground going before the Lord in prayer and again please let me remind you he is innocent of all that's going on verse and, and what we see here from from verse what, uh, 6 until the end of this, this chapter, verse 15, it's a prayer. This is, this is Ezra's prayer, a recorded prayer. What Ezra said to the Lord when faced with this crisis. So my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he says, he says I'm, I'm ashamed. 
I'm ashamed. I got blushed. Like I, I can't even look up to you. That's how ashamed I am of this sin that's 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 taken place. Um, from from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the, of, of the lands to the sword, to, the, to captive, captivity, to plundering, to the utter shame as it is today. It gives this, verse 7, this brief like history of, of a reminder, like, man, we've, we've seen this before. We've done this before. Like, how in the world can we be returning to this? Like, we've, we were in captivity. 70 years of captivity for disobedience. We, we disobeyed you, God. And here we are, you allow us to return back here. In our own wicked ways, we drift back. Here's something that's very important for us to see. In verse 6, when Ezra is laid out and says he's ashamed, Notice what he says there. He says, for our iniquities. Our. He doesn't, he doesn't say, for the sins of my people. For the sins of all Israel. He says, our. He, he, he understands that that he's a sinful person. He could easily fall into the same trap as these people. He, he sees that this sin doesn't just affect a, a group of people. It, it affects the whole nation. It's, it's kind of like that idea of, of an offensive lineman. Right? One offensive lineman can, can do everything, can, can, on, on a particular play, can do everything right. He can have the proper blocking technique. He can have the proper blocking scheme, do everything right. But if the rest of the group doesn't function properly, the quarterback's going to get sacked. And so while he did his task perfectly, the rest, well, they, they brought upon harm to the quarterback. And so we see the same, kind of the same picture here of the believers of the church. That we, yes, well, well we, we might be doing things right, but understand, we're still part of the offensive line. We're still part of that, that team. And those sins don't just affect that individual, but it affects all of us. And we're all prone to that. Verse 8 says... Um, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown to the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may, be, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we were slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended us the steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. 
in the middle of this prayer of anguish, in the, in the middle of this, this prayer of repentance, of acknowledgement of their sin, Ezra goes back to the God's grace. He shows us that grace kind of in like in a few different ways. It's, it's kind of a couple of different pictures of, of grace I, that they could identify. Mentions there that, that remnant. And when you go through and you read the history of, of, of Israel, especially in the Old Testament, there are times when, when, when the, the nation falls far from God. But even when it does, God always, always preserved a remnant, a small group that would be faithful to him. And so in this, Ezra identifies and says, in God, in God, in your good grace, you've always given us a, a remnant. Even now, there's still a remnant. He mentions there a secure hold. It's almost like a, a, a picture here of, of a, a tent peg that's driven into the ground. It creates stability. And so Ezra says, God, even, even now, like where we're at now, like we, we were disobedient, we were put into exile, but, but you brought up kings you know, that, that, that were gracious to us, that allowed us to come back home to Israel. That's given us a, a new sense of stability. God, that's only your grace. He mentions there um, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. It's a, a picture of new life, of new joy, like the dawning of a new day. Like God's allowed that for him. but has extended us the steadfast love from the kings. Again, we talk about that, just talk about that, um, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house, to repair the ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And ultimately he says, God, your good grace has protected us. And in the face of all of this stuff, in the face of your great mercy and your good grace, We've sinned. It says, verse 10, it says, And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? After all the good things you've done for us, after, after we've experienced all of your grace. It says, for we. Again, if I were you and you have a Bible, I would circle that word we. We have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the people of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from, the, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and neither seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Again, it's this reminder, like, I told you long ago, God said, I told you long ago not to do this. And, and along the way, God has been good. 
He's been gracious. But yet the people, Israel, they keep turning and falling. Let me read this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God takes them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devout them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to your sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me. We just talked about You're going to turn your children away from following the Lord to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in places, pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved image with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What causes Ezra to be so ashamed, so broken, was the people's absolute abandonment of doing what God had told them to do. And he could see, he could see that, that the result of of those actions, like what they deserved because of their continued, continual rebellion, because of their continual disobedience, was judgment. Verse 13 says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break our commandment again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? And Ezra is saying, God, you've been so good to us. He goes, and honestly, he said, God, even even when we have failed, like you, you haven't, you haven't punished us like you should have, like you could have. Your grace and your mercy well, it continues to be bestowed upon us. And we, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve all these other opportunities. And then verse 15 ends. The prayer. He says, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped. As it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. 
Ezra doesn't end this with a request. Doesn't end this with, Lord, save us, protect us, like judge them. He simply acknowledges how great God is and he lays all the people, all of them, at the mercy of his grace, at the throne of his grace. Listen, I think there's, there's a few lessons I think that we can take away from, from this situation that I think is so incredibly relevant to us today. The first, I think what we see in this is that, that the people, God's special, the, the, the Israelites here, God's chosen people who were to be that light to those nations around them. See, what God was trying to instill in those people was, yes, they were going to go. They were going to be in the world. They were going to be amongst other nations. But they were to be the light that would change those nations. Not bringing those nations into them and then having them corrupt them, their beliefs. No, they were supposed to be, like Jesus tells us in Matthew, the salt and the light. And what had happened, what was beginning to happen here in Ezra's day, in Jerusalem, was that salt was losing its saltiness. The light, it was, like Jesus said, it was, it was buried under this bushel. Today, for us, are we being the right salt and the right light where we're at? In our Jerusalem, where God's planted us, are we the kind of people who tremble at God's word? Are we the, the type of people who, who are ashamed of sin? Are we the kind of people that, that when, when God tells us to be in this world but not of this world, is that us? Or have we justified ourselves? And honestly, have we justified our sin in intermarrying within this world? God has called us, believers, those of you who are watching this right now, who claim to be Christians, God has called us to be holy people, which means set apart, different. Yes, we are to be in this world, but we are to be the salt and the light within this world. I ask you, are you being salt and light today? Listen, let me ask you this. When it comes to sin, how are we responding to sin? But let me read this passage. I, I printed it out earlier from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. It says this, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy or unjust for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound uh, of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He asks the question, 
Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Were they ashamed when they did wrong, when they sinned? And the response, no. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. The time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Do we blush at sin? As we read this passage, we see the response that Ezra had for the people's sin. Believers, right now, I want to talk to you. Again, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior, who, who, who follow Him. This is specifically for you. Are we ashamed? Do we shudder? Do we share a similar response that Ezra had for the sins of our nation? No, many of us, we can point fingers at, at the wrongs of our people. And we can go in prayer and we can beg God to forgive those people or, or, or beg God to change those people or more than likely beg God to judge those people. We certainly aren't tearing our robes, pulling out our beard and our hair in anguish on, the, on our knees, our face down, too ashamed to look to God, praying on the behalf of our sins. Instead, we tend to justify sins. We tend to laugh at sins. What do you mean, Chad? How, how do we laugh at sins? I, mean, I want you to think through some of the things that you're willingly watching on TV or movies. This, when we see sin exhibited, when we see sin glorified, are we laughing? Are we just like what Jeremiah said? They don't even acknowledge it. A few weeks ago, we mentioned this prayer. Or mentioned a verse I want to share with you as we conclude this. Because I think this right here is a perfect story that shows 2 Chronicles 7.14 in action. Listen, it's a verse right now in the political climate that we live in. Here in America, it's a, it's a verse right now as, as we watch the different conventions and the different speeches taking place. As we see all these different shifts in society, as we see things begin to continue be polarized more and more. It's a thing that we're, many of us are saying that, that we want to we come, we want to pray. Let me read to you. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name 
Again, I'm only talking to believers. If, if you're watching this and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I mean, Bob, I don't want you to turn it off. I want you to stay here. I want you to listen. But, but I'm talking to those people right now who claim to be Christians. This verse is written to us. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that's what Ezra did. He didn't do it. Many of the things that our nations, we're not necessarily doing it. But humble ourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive the sin of their land. Christians, I believe that it is our time to be like Ezra, to get on our knees, bury our face in the carpet of our homes, and acknowledge our sins, and ask God to forgive us of those things, that we share that humiliation we, like Ezra, be once again appalled by sin and not just smile or laugh at or justify it. Folks, uh, today uh, is a bit of a heavy message. Today, as I look out among our nation, there's a lot of hardships. Sin is lifted high. That divide is getting greater and greater. And my fear is this, too many Christians have blurred the lines. Too many Christians are wanting to, desiring to, trying to become part of this world. They're staking claim here. They're building their foundation here. They're intermarrying with the world and they're bringing destruction not just to themselves but to their children. We see, we're seeing this played out amongst our eyes right now. We got so many like casual Christians that if they just come to church on a Sunday, occasionally if they give a little bit of money, they feel like it justifies everything else. They don't tremble at God's word anymore. They're no longer ashamed or appalled by sin. We live in a nation, in a world that needs healing. And I believe it starts with us. Maybe there's someone that's watching this today and say, Chad, I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never prayed and asked him to become my Lord and Savior. And can I encourage you to do that today? Can I encourage you to just, just now, in this moment, just, just close your eyes 
and pray to the Lord. Just ask Jesus. Just tell Jesus, man, Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done wrong. Please, please forgive me of all those things. Come into my life. Become my Lord. Become my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Listen, if you, if you made a decision today, if, if you have something you need to pray about, my, my personal email is going to be at the bottom of the screen. And I would love for you to send me an email. Let me know. Just, I, I just want to be able to come alongside you. I want to be able to first and foremost be able to just pray for you. Pray, pray for you maybe in that need. Pray for you amongst that struggle. Pray that God gives you the strength or, or the understanding to, to get past what you need to get past. Maybe you've accepted Jesus today as your Savior. Man. The absolute greatest decision you can ever make. I want to be able to come alongside you and help you take next steps. So I would be thrilled. I'd be honored if you sent me a, an email or posted a comment here on Facebook or whatever social media this, this is playing at. I love you guys. I'll see you soon.